Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is November the 3rd, and it's finally arrived, the election. We're in the middle of it. I don't know the result yet. We will know in a few hours, I hope, anyway. Um, But even though we don't know any results, there have already been some scandals, as there always will be in America, about the election. And it seems as if... The robots have arrived uh, in the the Wall Street, uh, the Washington Post today reports that a suspicious robocall campaign warning people to stay home spooks voters nationwide. In other words, the algorithm is in action now in terms of undermining democracy, replacing humans with the machine. One man who's given a lot of thought to the relationship between machines and men in our digital 21st century is... Uh, my old friend uh, Frank Pasquale. He's the author of The New Laws of Robotics, a book that's just come out, uh, New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI. Uh, Frank, is voting the most human of things? Is that what everyone's doing today? Is that something that can never be replaced by AI? You know, I think so. I think that there is something about governance that's really critical here. Um, And I think that if we we consider, you know, how we run society and also just how we run workplaces and other places like that, you know, and and just in general, distributing uh, power to people over things as grand as, you know, what the country's foreign policy is to as small as, you know, how do I as a doctor or nurse run an office, you know, in sort of encountering patients. Those are all really uh, critical roles for humans to have power. But, you know, in thinking about voting and governance in general, yeah, it's funny because there are, there are some people who are really expansive AI and robotics enthusiasts who say, you know, we'd be doing better with a robot president. And um, maybe in the U.S. right now we would, um, <laughs> just speaking in 2020 or 2017 to 2020. But that, that does raise, leave me thinking that, you know, sometimes the worse a job is done by a human, the more tempting it is to automate it. So I think some of these fantasies of automation are happening because some jobs are doing doing poorly. And even in politics, you know, when politics goes very badly, people want an AI or robot to run everything. Frank, my daughter is a freshman at uh, Bryn Mawr, and she was complaining to me yesterday that uh, some of the people in her, her chat room, of course, they can't see each other now because of COVID, but some of the people in her chat room are suggesting that People shouldn't be allowed to vote if they're not educated. Um, what is the relationship in your mind between education and humanness? Um, and, and, and should that play a role perhaps in determining whether or not people can do important things like voting? You know, I certainly wouldn't want to have any sort of education test for voting. Um, and I think that, you know, and I, and I would go even further in, in that remark, and I, I support um, 
looking into something that David Runciman has proposed, uh, this British political theorist saying that children- Who's been on the show, yeah. David is oh. an old friend and he's been on the show last month as well. So everyone's on our show eventually, Frank. <laughs> so, so I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting idea, right? I mean, having having kids vote because he says, you know, if, as as people get older, as people have dementia, they can vote, you know, and so certainly, and, and he feels like, on the other hand, you know, you might want to, even if a lot of children wouldn't have the capacity, you still would want their voice in some way. So, I wouldn't want to do that, but I do think there's something really important about education, and I think that you know, there's there's something critical about expanding opportunities for education ability to think critically and do the sort of meta level thinking like not only learn how to do a craft but think why do we do it this way who are we doing it for how do we do it better you know and that's something that really is key and it cannot be automated right and that's that's a big argument in the book is well, to not say, everyone would yeah. agree with you frank though about it not being <laughs> yeah. automated um my sense uh, and i know you're quite a skilled political theorist you you studied with my old friend glenn morgan at harvard um my sense is that uh, the great political theory debate of the 21st century is between technocracy and democracy. Would you agree with that? And is AI the great excuse to create a new kind of technocratic authoritarianism? I am very torn about a lot of technocracy debates because I think that certainly technocratic economic expertise has misled a lot of policymakers, a lot of policymakers following, you know, cost benefit analysis and um, uh, forms of- And I'm sorry to interrupt, Frank. The reason I bring that up is not yeah. to, to name drop Glenn or, or political theory stuff, but because AI can do technocracy. I mean, that's the essence of it, isn't it? Depends on your technocracy. So, I mean, I feel like, like, let's do, let's have two comparisons here. And one would be technocratic cost-benefit analysis of regulation, okay? And another would be, say, COVID response. And so I think with respect to, to the first one, like cost-benefit analysis of regulation, I really think it is hard to quantify the costs and benefits of various regulations, right? I mean, I think it's really hard to quantify and to do that uh, well. And I see that at the core of a lot of efforts to use AI to like, uh, you know, use to, to technoc technocratize uh, governments. However, I think that like in COVID response, you know, you could imagine a future where a really advanced system of AI was able to keep track of uh, people much better than our current um, human-driven systems do in terms of, uh, uh, and, and trying to stem pandemics in the bud. And that's something that could be a very positive a step forward that would be seen as technocratic, might be seen as, you know, privacy violative by some, but that in general, you know, would be something that I could, I could see worked into better pandemic response. So I think the, the answer there is, you know, a lot of times we, we just outsource way too much power to technocrats about things like uh, the shape of our healthcare system, how much should it cover, um, whom should it cover, and, and how, right? And I think those are d deeply democratic and political decisions, but about sort of actually executing on certain, um, uh, you know, commonly agreed values and goals, um, let's have more AI, you know, helping us do that. Uh, Frank, your your book uh, talks about the the need to defend human expertise in the age of AI. The question, of course, is is how we do that. 
Uh, last week, we had Larry Downs. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Who I think, uh, my old friend from Berkeley, basically arguing, um, he uses the term a measured approach, which, is a, which, is, which might be seen as a euphemism for not doing very much. Um, Larry argues that the four areas that are going to profoundly change in the early part of the 21st century are healthcare, housing, agriculture, and transportation. I get the sense from your book you wouldn't disagree about that, but I also would get the sense that you would disagree about regulation. How important is regulation in protecting human labor and human expertise uh, and human beings themselves in the age of AI? I think it's really important. And I think that, you know, let's let's use education as an, education and medicine are great examples. Um, I, I would totally agree that in terms of agriculture, I see that being very rapidly automated and, you know, still a role for regulation, but I'm, I don't write about much in the book. I mean, I, I leave that to the, to the experts in that field. But I do think in education, for example, um, one really technology um, reliant vision would say, let's use apps instead of teachers, you know, and there's even a book out there called, you know, can robots be teachers? And I really doubt that. I think that would be a very bad idea. Well, you're a teacher, Frank, and you yeah, wouldn't okay, be a robot, would you? Let's do well, doctors. You wouldn't want to be replaced by a robot. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be. Sure, there's an interest here. There's absolutely an interest here. But I mean, there's. I, I, I can use. I can use doctors as well because I mean, I pay a lot right. for health insurance, and so and I, lawyers, I, doctors, <laughs> lawyers, engineers. I mean, isn't the interesting thing? Uh, I, I want you to get back to regulation, but isn't one of the interesting things about? this next wave of AI, it's not going to replace people working at fast food restaurants. It's going to potentially replace lawyers and doctors and professors at universities. So profoundly reshape or undermine uh, the 19th and 20th century middle class. It could. I mean, we could, we could structure society to do that. You know, we could structure society and say, and for example, let's say that with respect to student loans, you could imagine a future where the government in the U.S. says, uh, you know, we're just, we're going to give everybody, you know, 3000 a year for each year of college, right? Or you could see in Australia, you know, where they have income-based repayments or other schemes like that. In England, they could say, you know, we're, we're just going to do it in that way. I think, and, and if you did it that way, you would have to have lots more AI taking over this sort of stuff or just, you know, just video lectures, et cetera. I don't think that would be a very wise thing to do because I think that essentially what that would end up doing would sort of concentrate a great deal of power and knowledge in some very large companies. So you're going to lose sort of the, like imagine having one American history course taught at every college in the country, right? There's lots of approaches to American history, many of which I don't agree with. You know, I and probably some wouldn't. people argue that would be a good thing because then everyone would have access to one particularly famous professor. But of course, it would also centralize power. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we live in a better society, you know, having the distributed expertise um, of lots of different professors. And I, I, I argue this point in the education chapter of the book, too. I mention you know, things like differing views of philosophy. Like there's many philosophers out there. I, I don't really get what they're doing. And I think it's a little weird or, you know, or immoral or whatever it might be. But I'm glad they're out there. I'm glad there's a lot of them out there. And it's not just, you know, some dictator saying, here's here it is. With medicine, it's even more interesting because I think with medicine, it's, um, you know, that that seems like a situation where you may just say, look, there's one best way to get rid of a melanoma or there's one best way to do a colonoscopy, whatever it might be. Um, but I still think that, you know, there are so many data points that we have yet to gather about how well different technology is working. And so there's like two sides of it. One side of it would be right now there's a lot of failures in these systems and we want to be able to have people 
recognize the failures and be able to mediate between you know patients and the technology. In the longer term future, I think that you we want to devise a system where you know it's doctors all over the place that are sort of partnering with the technology firms and understanding what's going on. And I mean, the classic example of that would be having why do we have two pilots in a plane, right? We we have autopilots that do so much of the work, right? And we could really push hard to automate the last part, the last mile problem, right? The takeoffs and landings. But it seems like people want to have a skilled pilot in there. Um, and, and I think partly that's, I think that's a good thing. And I think that there's even more reasons to do it, many more reasons to do it that way in health and education, just given how contestable the, a, a good outcome could be. And, and, you know, patients' values may differ about how they want to treat different problems. And certainly mm-hmm. think about mental health, you'd want to have, I think, uh, a person-on-person, person-to-person relationship as opposed to like, just turn it all over to cognitive behavioral therapy apps. Yeah, Nick Carr in his, what is it called? I think it's his last book, The the Glass Cage, or the second to last book, uh, begins the book with a focus on the need or the the, the value of of human pilots uh, over AI. Uh, Frank, you've been one of the leading critics of big tech. Uh, You you certainly have, again, as somebody who's created, I think, this new environment where more and more people are suspicious of the the big tech companies of Silicon Valley, of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Um, what is the connection between the need to protect human expertise in the age of AI and the challenge of shackling or controlling big tech? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that ultimately what that comes down to is there's a vision, I think, at the ideological level at many of these tech companies that ultimately, you know, machine learning is going to do it all. And in fact, I think I just saw an article today that uh, in MIT Tech Review that where the headline was, Jeff Hinton says, machine learning will do it all. You know, it'll, it'll do your job as a lawyer, you know, all 770. Yeah, occupations I, mean, I think we should create a, a Jeff Hinton bot and replace Jeff Hinton himself. That would be appropriate, wouldn't it? <laughs> You know, he is. Uh, <laughs> that's true. It's never been put to him. That's that's the great question, right? And it's it's it would be a maybe he question. is a bot though. Maybe uh, maybe maybe that's what bots say. <laughs> I think it'd be a wonderful question to put to him and just say, look, why are you even here? You know, why why haven't you automated? You know, your lab management and all the other you know things that you do. So you know, I, I think that's the part of it. You know, is that you you want to say that, and and I think the other. So, so I'm worried about that situation because I think that it becomes an excuse for them to watch everything we do, right? If they say, well, hey, you know, we have these magic beans, but to activate the magic beans of AI, just make a deal where we can watch everything you do 24-7 the rest of your life or watch everything you do at work, and then we're going to replicate that in a machine. You know, I, I don't think that's right. And I, I would certainly want them to, like, succeed at driving before I would acquiesce to that level of surveillance. Are like, you... Uh... Uh, Frank, are you in the uh, in the Zuboff camp when it comes to this debate about surveillance capitalism? Is this the new system in the West controlled by these monopolistic big tech companies? I think there's a lot to be said for the surveillance capitalism vision. I think ultimately where I think it goes is that these firms are like finance firms. I think the, the a really good metaphor, and you know, certainly I think this is totally congruent with what she's saying. Is uh, there... Shoshana Zuboff, of course, who, again, has been on our show. Everyone, as I said, has been on the show. So. <laughs> Wonderful. That's great. Except uh, Hinton, who probably because he's a bot. 
you got to keep those Canadian bots off the show, you know, Russian bots or whatever. But I think that, you know, the, with, with the Zubov, though, I love their book. I mean, her book is fantastic. It's a, it's a brilliant book. And I think, it, you know, and I, and I think that uh, I would, I think that if there's any difference in our points of view about the dominance of these firms, it would be more that I try to draw on metaphors of finance. And I think that just as, you know, we, as a society, we came to terms with finance, or at least the U.S. did in, in many ways by saying, you had to separate finance from commerce. You know, you had to say that you, know, you couldn't just allow companies because they were giant banks to control all of commerce because they had control of credit, which was essential. And I think just as they control funding, these big tech firms control finding. So it's the funded, being, being funded and being found are your two major problems as a business, I think, um, or just fundamental problems for a business. Um, and so I think that that's a big problem. And I think that, you know, we've got to address those firms. And my worry is that they're saying things about AI that would lead um, folks in government, you know, in all sorts of areas, from HHS to D, 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 health and human services to defense departments, war department, military policing, all the rest, just look to them for solutions. Like police looking to Amazon for a solution, Amazon's you know Ring software, and saying, oh, now with Amazon that force multiplier, we can watch everything, you know. And I and I, I don't think that's a great future. I don't think that would be a very good way to go in terms of the development of AI. Um, Frank, are there any particularly creepy AI companies in America? Palantir, Peter Thiel's little play thing comes to mind. You know, I don't like the firms that are, I, I have a real suspicion of the firms that are now marketing and saying that they can analyze your face and from the facial analysis, recommend whether you should be hired or not. So yeah, I wouldn't hire you, Frank, if I was just looking at your face. <laughs> I'm teasing you. <laughs> you know, I well, I mean, actually, I mean, it is partly when I watch. I mean, I, it's very uncanny. Of course, you know, in this age of Zoom, I, I record classes and I watch them afterward. Mm. You know, to just see, you know, what, and it's weird because it's like you can watch every student's face wow. as well, and you can see like where did they, and you can have, and there's also okay, well, I'll name two actually in China. There's a one called uh, um, Han Wang, I think, that I described in the education chapter that sells software in Chinese classrooms. It takes a picture of every student's face every second. Right, and this is, of course, something that will. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> will be the building one of the core building blocks of China's social credit system, which is essentially Orwell's 1984 on digital steroids. You know, it's so. I, I think that it's it's really worrisome. Yeah, and and I think that you know, just I don't want to be pedantic about it, but just because I was corrected about this, or or just you know, someone was someone said to me like. Well, the school stuff you talk about isn't formally part of the social credit system, and it's true. But on the other hand, if you look at the next generation AI development plan, it is being pushed in that, or at least in the broad outlines, it's being pushed. And clearly, as you say, it could that data could feed in very well, you know, into into these sorts of systems, and it's troubling. You know, I don't want to have that sort of data. I don't want to have children being worried all the time. Is my data being? Uh, is is am I, is my face? Am I not looking sufficiently attentive? You know, I mean, yeah, and, and certainly these issues, and when we've had a, a number of uh, books about this, about race and identity, I mean, it, it adds a huge dimension to this debate. Uh, Frank, uh, yesterday I had the honor of having Margaret Macmillan, the great Canadian historian, on on the show to talk about her new book, War: How Conflict Shaped Us. And I asked her at the end, I said, "Well." In the future, because I always think historians make wonderful uh, futurists. I said, uh, Margaret, how is AI going to change war? And she was 
little sniffy. She said, I don't think it's going to change it that much. You would disagree. You had a, a really interesting long read in The Guardian published about the dangerous rise of military AI. Um, is AI replacing the generals and the colonels, Frank? I don't think it's going to replace them, but I think what it's going to do is it's going to create conditions for rapidly out of control conflict because a lot of the push to AI is to respond as speedily as possible. And so you have, you know, just sort of the Dr. Strangelove dynamics of people like, you know, Herbert Kahn on, on escalation, et cetera. You, know, you add in the idea of a push button war where, you know, one thing goes wrong and then you can instantly respond. And then the other side is programmed to instantly respond. That's what I most worry about in that scenario. Uh, Paul Scharr, uh, this AI and military expert calls it the potential for a million mistakes a second, you know, which is really troubling. I think the other side of it too is um, that, that I think is going to change warfare is it's going to make warfare more like policing. So we're going to have these occupied zones where uh, major powers with lots of drones, lots of surveillance capacities, and lots of processing capacities will just have drones everywhere. And not just flying drones, but drones that are sort of creeping up the walls, uh, you know, going along the sidewalks, the size of insects, these sorts of things, just constantly watching, recording uh, individuals. So there's no way you'll know whether you're being watched or not um, for suspicious activity, you know, and I and I think that that's a really terrifying future. I think that's a really too, and it sort of is like a possibility for an oppressive occupation to last forever based on asymmetry of technological capacity, you know. And, oh, and Frank, that, uh, forever yeah. is a long time. Um, I'm curious about the the subtitle of your book. You say defend. Uh, well, sorry, the, the title of the book, New Laws of Robotics. Uh, I was struck, particularly in your conclusion, by the fact that there really aren't any new laws. Uh, the end of your book, you go back, as so often in, in, in interesting and thoughtful books like yours, you go back to the ancient Greeks and remind us of the myth of Icarus. Are there really any new laws about AI, or is it just a repeat of every hubris that we humans seem to fall for? every generation? <laughs> you know, I, I think, well, I, the, the person I'm sort of uh, riffing off of in the title is the Asimov Three Laws of Robotics. And I think that those, and, and I think you could see that the title of my book is, has two meanings. One being, I'm giving four new laws, which, you know, we can talk about or not. I mean, they're, they're uh, a structure for the book. But I'm also saying well, briefly that, because I, I haven't asked you about those, and you and you should briefly just go over those four laws, Frank. Sure. So you know the the Asimov uh, laws are essentially making sure that robots don't um, harm persons. And my laws, you know, the first law is it's it's about creating lasting human control over technology development. So he's concerned about like what happens when we have robots. What do they do? I'm concerned more with what are the robots going to look like and what are they going to do? Um, and so therefore, my first new law says that they should complement rather than replace professionals. We've already sort of talked about some of the implications of that. The second one is that they should not counterfeit humanity. So they shouldn't be um, used to fake uh, human attributes. We can talk further about what, what fakery looks like in that context. Maybe like Jeff Hinton. <laughs> yes, and they shouldn't. That's one great example. There's these bots that now call and pretend they're people, you know, and they're actually just a simulated voice and uh, online, lots of stuff like that. Um, and affective computing. There's a whole subfield of computer science that's about 
trying to get people to think that a computer has emotions. But if you say the wrong thing to it, it's sad. And then if you say the right thing to it, it's happy. And that to me is a complete fakery. The computer doesn't have feelings. You know, they, there's just no mooring in, in the same type of sociobiology or uh, biological, evolutionary, social uh, foundations of our emotions. Um, the third is on um, arms races, stopping the arms races. Uh, and, and I look primarily at the military, but there's lots of other examples I could give. And the fourth is saying that any AI or robotics should be attributed to a person. It should be owned and controlled by a person, and we should know who that person is. Um, and that comes down to punishment, because if an AI or robot does something bad, we know how to punish a person. We don't know how to punish the AI. So, for example, there was a security robot that um, hit a small child. And, you know, if things had gone a little differently, it could have run over the small child. Um, we can't, I don't want to live in a world where we say, okay, well, then the security robot goes to prison. It doesn't care. Yeah, and, we, and we don't have to have this stupid metaphor that, you know, that the computer has to choose between killing one child or four old people. I mean, these things are absurd, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a pretty primitive way of, of thinking about AI ethics. You know, I want to live in a world, though, where the company that created the robot can be, the people in the company that created the robot can be punished if, you know, it runs over a child or something like that. So AI can't have ethics, but the people, the companies, the governments that build AI do still have ethics. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Frank's new book, uh, The New Laws of Robotics, Defending, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI, is an all-too-human book. It's a really good read, uh, perhaps a little bit more readable than Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of uh, Surveillance Capitalism. And, 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 and everyone should look at it, even on election day, when people might have other things on their mind. Uh, Frank, I know you're in Brooklyn at the moment, uh, as America is voting in these strange days of Trump and COVID. What else should people be reading, in addition to your important new book, New Laws of Robotics? Great. So let me give three recommendations. And my, my first would be Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology. It's a brilliant book, really important. I, I cite it in uh, chapter five of my, my book, uh, sort of thinking about the possibility for techno corrections and, and home imprisonment. A lot of people are saying that AI could solve the prison problem by basically imprisoning people at home, you know, just sort of you, you don't get to leave your home. Right, we're all in prison today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, this would be even worse, I, I think. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one idea, and I think that she that that's a really good work of hers, Ruha Benjamin. The second is um, Mark Andreevich, uh, Automated Media, just a brilliant. I mean, his his work is all brilliant, but like that book, it's a new book and uh, just really excellent. And uh, he's just such a deep thinker about what it means to live in a world of simulations and you know efforts by AI and robotics to simulate human endeavors. And the last uh, would be a New York book, uh, Ben Lerner's 1004. Uh, ben Lerner is just a really interesting novelist. And uh, he has uh, uh, this wonderful book from about 2012 about just being in New York in 2012, but also being uh, living as an artist and what it means to sort of think about the role of the artist in a society and uh, his obligations and how that intersects with his life as a friend, a confidant, a lover, you know, all, it's just a remarkable book. And actually, I have to add as well, um, on the topic of our podcast, or of our, of our conversation, is um, uh, Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me. Uh, I think that's a brilliant novel, and uh, I would highly recommend it to anybody interested in thinking uh, about this area. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season 
as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.